0: Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, and I'm here today with another great show for you guys. Um, as promised, uh, the other day when I was talking about seeing J-Rad on December 1st at the Riviera Nightclub in on the north side of Chicago, um, corner of Lawrence and Broadway, uh, just down the street from the Uptown Theater where the Dead came and played. Many a great show, none of which I ever saw there, but that's a story for a different day. Uh, But we are going to feature that December 1st show and uh, very excited to do it. And we'll talk all about J-Rad and the songs they're playing. And uh, we got a birthday shout out to a rock and roll legend and some more shenanigans by the uh, federal government. Uh, with regard to marijuana, that's no surprise. So, let's dive right into uh, 12:123 from the Riv in Chicago, where we've got uh, J Red walking out on stage. is a, uh, a really great tune that I've always really liked a lot it, it's a later Dead tune um, it's the lead single uh, and opening uh, the opening song from the uh, Built to Last album which for some people is a bit of a trivial footnote maybe being as it's the band's final studio album but all in all it I think is um, yeah, not up there in the pantheon of uh, a great Grateful Dead albums although we did get some good songs off of it uh, that survived and were played in concert quite a bit. Foolish Heart being one of them, and it's really a great combination of the band's uh, uh, unique instrumental chemistry and Hunter's profound ponderings in the lyrics. If you throw in strong performance by Jerry Garcia on his lead guitar, this is a real gem in the Dead's uh, rather large catalog of um, live music that's been released and that's accessible. And it, it's a really, really, uh, it's a great song. And, uh, you know, when they played it, we n- no uh, real negative reactions from my crowd. Garcia, who wrote the music, spoke uh, about its unique construction in a previous interview from 1989, where he said, the, the thing that's interesting about Foolish Heart is it doesn't have any pads in it. He said, nobody's playing chords in the song, not anybody everybody's playing lines and the lines hook up and tell you everything you need to know about the harmonic content of the song. You don't wonder where it's going. It's so beautifully designed. It's like a clock. It's really lovely. It surprised me that it came out so interesting and so perfect and so totally its own personality. That's the Grateful Dead in action, really. You know, what a great way for Garcia to describe it. And you know, you can now listen to the song and uh, really think about it on a whole different level and uh, realize how important it was to the Grateful Dead. Uh, they played it 88 times after it came out, the first time uh, June 19th, 1989, excuse me, 1988, at Alpine Valley Show I was lucky enough to be at. Last played on June 27th, 1995, by the Dead at the Palace of Auburn Hills outside of Detroit. Uh, it's a, It's been a consistent song in the JRAD catalog of the tunes that they play, uh, they're a little bit irreverent in the sense that they come out with set lists that are mostly grateful dead tunes with some unique covers, which we'll get into in today's show. And one of the reasons why I was really excited to go back and cover this show today. Um, but, uh, it always helps to have a little bit of background knowledge about who we're talking about. Everybody's sort of J rad Joe Russo's almost dead. Um, and I think by agreement of a lot of people who I consider, uh, Uh, the folks in the dead universe that I look up to to you know kind of gauge the way of the winds and what the current trends are and everything like that, that they pretty much check in as the number one Grateful Dead cover band going out there right now. No disrespect meant to Dark Star Orchestra, uh, any of the other myriad groups out there that are doing it. Um, but these guys just bring it all together and, and they they do it so tight and so well, uh, that when they were when they came out and they opened with um foolish heart you know it, it almost even sounds a little bit like it is the grateful dead playing it and and, and they just have this ability to uh, bring a unique sound to something while maintaining the original sound that may not make sense but that's what they do and that's what really makes them kind of cool um they were formed in 2013 uh as i said mainly just covering music uh, of the grateful dead uh the band was formed by further and Benevento Russo, drummer Joe Russo. Uh, The band played their first show on January 26, 2013 at the Brooklyn Bowl in Brooklyn, New York. In addition to Russo, the band also includes Ween bassist Dave Drywitz, keyboardist Marco Marco Benevento, Scott Metzger on guitar and vocals, and Tom Hamilton of Brothers Past, Ghost Light, American Babies, and um, Billy and the Kids, On uh, lead guitars and vocals And they're all great musicians Joe's amazing on the drums Marco is fantastic on the keyboards Uh, Anybody who's a fan of Wien Recognizes uh, um, Dave Drywitz's talents on the bass uh, And Tom Hamilton, excuse me um, Scott Metzger uh, plays a great guitar as well and, And takes his turn at the microphone And it's really a lot of fun But just some quick background on these guys uh, that Russo was born in '76. He's an American drummer, uh, originally half of the Benevento Russo duo, toured and performed with a number of other bands, including Cass McCombs, A Big Yes, Small No, Fat Mama, Robert Walters' 20th Congress, Bustle in Your Hedgerow, Younger Brother, Spangle, Tom Hamilton's American Babies, the Trey Anastasio Mike Gordon duo, the Gene Ween band, and further, uh, with Phil and Bobby, uh, and, uh, John Catalasic. He formed a Grateful Dead tribute band called Joe Russo's Almost Dead. In mid-2006, he was the drummer in collaboration with Trey Anastasio, Mike Gordon, and Marco Benevento, sometimes referred to as Grab or, jokingly, Mike and the Italians. And I saw those guys in 2006 um, at the, uh, the, uh, Outdoor theater on the – sorry, guys, I'm spacing on the name right now. Uh, uh, The uh, outdoor theater out where Miggs Field used to be uh, where they have a really nice summer venue for music shows here in Chicago. And uh, you can go out and see the music, and you get a great skyline view of the city. And um, uh, we went and saw my brother and I, uh, who now lives in New York, but at the time he was here. And he and I went out there for a show that the opening act was the duo, Joe Russo and Marco Benavento, um and uh, we'll, we'll talk about more, them more in a minute. And then uh, after they played a set of pretty interesting music, I thought, they came back out with Trey and Mike. And this was during uh, Fish's 2005 to 2009 hiatus, I think, was the timing there. So people were excited to see Trey. People were excited to see Trey and Mike. And uh, they really didn't play... Any fish tunes that I can recall, uh, for some reason that night, Trey had a songworm in his ear of "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." Something about being in Chicago uh, and the Cubs, who at that time were still ten years away from winning their first World Series. Uh, but he kept peppering the little "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" theme all the way through the night. After he and Mike came out there, it was a great show, a lot of fun. And uh, um, a a beautiful venue, still yet to be named, but I'll think of it at some point. Um, But Marco Benevento is an American pianist, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and record producer. He's been a fixture in the New York experimental music rock and jazz scene since 1999. He's the founder and recording engineer of Fred Short, a a recording studio in upstate New York, and a member of the rock group's Benevento-Russo duo, and Joe Russo's Almost Dead, both of which feature his regular musical collaborator, Joe Russo. Benevento plays on a Casio sampling keyboard, an effects pedal, a Hammond organ with bass pedal board and a Wurlitzer electric piano, all of which are great, but when he gets going on that Hammond uh, B3, it's really something special. Uh, The duo that we keep referring to, the the Benevento-Russo duo, is an instrumental indie rock experimental uh, Hammond organ organ, Wurlitzer electric piano and drum duo that he formed with drummer Joe Russo in two thousand one. The band makes use of samplers, loop circuits, circuit bent toys, guitars, as well as and spiels to augment their sound. The Benevento Russo duo have performed at events like Lollapalooza, Austin City Limits, the Fuji Rock Festival, Bonnaroo, uh, High Sierra Music Festival, and have drawn reviews at public, in, in publications ranging from Rolling Stone to Pitchfork Media. Uh, then we've got Tom Hamilton, who's the uh, lead guitar singer. He's an American uh, songwriter, musician, and producer, uh, best known as vocalist and uh, guitarist in bands like Brothers Past, American Babies, j Red, and uh, just as importantly, Billy and the Kids. Uh, if you've seen Billy and the Kids, he's out there doing the same thing, and he really brings another level to it and seems to be the go-to guy for some of these great covers that they pull off. Um, and, uh, you know, really just a tremendous talent. Dave Drywitz uh, is an American musician, multi-instrumentalist. He's best known as the bassist. For the Band Ween, um, and Joe Russo is almost dead. Some people are fans of the Band Ween. Some people aren't. Uh, I'm kind of right down the middle with them. If somebody puts them on, I'll listen to it. But it's not necessarily the first choice of music. I was pick. I would pick if it was my turn to pick the next, uh, you know, music for a group of people who are all hanging out. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, no disrespect to Dave Drywitz, because he's a great talent and really b- brings a lot to J Rad. Uh, in, in terms of the, the bass playing that he does. And so much of the Grateful Dead music that they cover uh, has such a strong bass presence because of Phil. And uh, Dave does, I think, a really good job of stepping in there on these tunes and doing more than a passable job, a very formidable job, I would say, of uh, of, of picking up the bass lines for the Grateful Dead tunes and for all of the other great covers that they play uh, with just a, a strong rotating uh, arc of covers so many that uh, I thought I had heard them all. And I'm hearing ones uh, at this show on December 1st that we'll get to uh, that. I didn't even realize that they had ever played before or that they even knew. Uh, And that's what's so wonderful about JRAD. They're such talented musicians. They can just pop into songs like this. I'm sure there's a lot of practice involved, uh, but they really, really do it and and do a great job. Um, Drywitz is from New York city. Uh, His parents were traditional jazz musicians His father played trombone, his mother tuba. Uh, He joined the Hoboken, New Jersey-based psychedelic rock band Tiny Lights in 1983, his first professional band out of high school in 86 while attending Rutgers in New Brunswick. He met fellow schoolmate and drummer Scott Byrne, and through a love of similar music, they started the rock band Instant Death in 1991, and it dissolved with the passing of Byrne, unfortunately, in 2005. In '97, Drywitz joined Ween. He was also a member, as we said, of JRad, the Dean Ween group, and the Led Zeppelin instrumental tribute band, Bustle in Your Hedgerow. Uh, he occasionally plays bass with Chris Harford in the band of Changes, uh, Old Rugged Sauce, as well as his own drum and bass duo, Crescent Moon, which features Drywitz on bass and vocals alongside various guest drummers. Crescent Moon drummers have included Claude Coleman of Wien, Tomato from The Sound of Urchin, Eric Slick of Dr. Dog, and of course, Joe Russo. And then finally, Scott Metzger, who's from Trent, New Jersey, is an American guitarist. His work touches on a lot of different styles, psychedelic rock, soul, country, jazz, surf rock. His collaborations with other artists include Phil, John Schofield, Joe Russo, John Mayer, OTiel, Warren Haynes, Shooter Jennings, La La Brooks of the Crystals. Trixie Whitley, Nicole Atkins, Anders Osborne, one of my favorites, Dean Wien, Russ Lawton, uh, and others. Circles Around the Sun, the Stanton Moore Trio, and Umphreys Metzger is a full-time member of Joe Russo's Almost Dead since its inception of 2013, and he continues to play with these, a lot of these other artists. So, you know, that's who we're really talking about here, and uh, uh, they make up a great, great, great content of musicians, and they're so much fun to see. And, uh, you know, like we say, they came right out and opened up with Foolish Heart, which was great fun, a wonderful way to start a show, um, but uh, quickly gave way to what became one of the biggest surprises of the night in the very next song. that's Tell Me Mama. It's a song written by Bob Dylan, and this is important, performed exclusively during his 96, 1966 world tour with the band, then known as the Hawks. It was used to introduce the second half of a concert when Dylan switched from an acoustic solo performance to an electric performance backed by the band. The song was never recorded on a studio album, nor was it ever performed again by Dylan in concert after the end of the 1966 tour. Uh, Dylan's May 17, 1966, live performance of the song was released in 1998 on the Bootleg Series Volume 4, Bob Dylan Live 1966, the Royal Albert Hall Concert. In 2016, all of Dylan's recorded live performances of Tell Me Mama from 1966 were released in the 36 CD box set, the 1966 live recordings, with the May 26, 1966 performance. Released separately on the album, the Real Royal Albert Hall 1966 Concert, the box contained sets. Excuse me, the box set contains all the live versions of Tell Me Mama, ever performed by Dylan and his band. Which answered a question for me, because when I saw that they were, um, hadn't only really played it, you know, that one time, and it never came out on an album. That just for me kind of begs the question of, how is it that these guys even knew about the song to be able to play it? Um, none of those guys, you know, track out an age old enough to be, a, uh, necessarily following Dylan around in 1966 on his world tour. Um, but I guess if they got their hands on the bootleg versions, uh, and knew it from there, uh, and decided it would be fun to play. But, you know, for all of us, this is just like a bonus because these guys are really tight. They play it really well. Uh, they sound like Dylan. Uh, it's really kind of funny, I think. And, um, you know, it's it's a little bit of rock and roll history, a, a song from the uh, one of the, if not the greatest uh, rock composers of all time in Dylan uh, and from a period of his uh, of his touring life that was very singular and unique, uh, the 66 World Tour. And this is, you know, a great example of that. But, you know, they bring it out to the rest of us. So everybody goes running for their phones in the middle of the show. You see them all light up. Everybody's typing in, tell me, mama, what is it? And uh, there's other, there's other versions, there's other songs called Tell Me Mama uh, by other performers that, that are not this one. And so, you know, it took a, a few minutes for people to settle on uh, which one it was. But once somebody called up the lyrics and, and figured out that they could more or less sing along, uh, we knew that he had hit on the right one. And so we could all focus on that. And, and that really, I thought, was funny right there sitting in the concert and seeing that we were hearing a song song. That Dylan himself had only played over, you know, one uh, one tour, uh, the span of one tour in 1966, and that's that's pretty amazing. So it was great; they played it really, really well, and it's one of the reasons why we really like um, uh, J. Red so much because they're not afraid to dig really, really deep into you know the songbook of any artist that they would like to be covering, and this is a great example of that. And you just don't hear. Uh, people out there covering songs like Tell Me Mama all the time, and certainly none, you know, who play it this 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 well and, uh, you know, so sounds so much like uh, a, a Dylan-led band. Uh, so that was really a lot of fun, too, and really glad, uh, um, you know, to be able to get that song in there. Um, one thing I want to talk about really fast, and uh, I suppose that this could have come up during the cannabis side, but it's actually... Uh, it has a lot to do on the marijuana side, but the music side too, um, for a reason that will become clear in a moment. So I think I'm going to get to this quickly and then maybe dip in for a little more music before we slide over for our cannabis chat of the day, because there's some stuff there that really needs to be discussed. Um, first thing, music news, uh, fish tickets for the sphere are apparently out. So the big question is, did you guys get any, uh, my short answer is, is as of now, I have not gotten anything from Fish one way or the other, and I'm told by my son and his uh, gang of friends that Fish will certainly show me the courtesy of, uh, at a minimum, sending me something saying, nope, you didn't get it, uh, you know, tough luck for you. Uh, but I haven't gotten that yet, at least I don't think so. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll find out. Who knows, maybe that's something that, you know, like would come be coming across my uh my desk right now, but nope, even right now as I'm taping this on uh, Friday night, uh, the 15th at uh, just before 6 o'clock Central Time, I have not officially heard from Fish yet. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed and see if that happens because it would be fun to go for a few of those shows if I could pull it off. Um, if not, oh, well, was not meant to be? And uh, there's now rumors floating around that uh, Dead Co. with John Mayer in tow, Are going to perform at the Sphere and I figure that's as good as anything to get them back up on stage which just begs the question will a guy like uh, Bill Kreutzman who loves the, uh, the psychedelics and the lights and all of that be tempted to mend whatever creative differences came up at the very end and join them back on stage and that would certainly be a lot of fun if he could pull it off but if not then you know I guess we kind of get them as we get them and just do it that way um, but here's what I was going to say. There's an article out there that I read online one day when I was bored and I was flipping around on the internet for a few minutes before I dived back into, uh, all of my, uh, big legal work that I have here all day long at Michigan law in lovely Northbrook, Illinois. Um, and this article was talking about cruise ships and I enjoy the concept of cruising. My wife, not so much. So we really haven't gone on a lot of them. But, uh, and, you know, with all the COVID stuff and still kind of kicking around on some levels, I'm not even sure that now would be the time. But I could see a time later in life when you'd like to see a lot of places and not have to move around too much, um, you know, and have everything taken care of. And you just kind of have one room you stay in the whole time. Could be kind of nice. Um, but that may not happen right away because it turns out that uh, not only do cannabis is surprise, surprise, have a no cannabis rule. Of course they do. But they actually enforce it, most cruise lines. And they enforce it very vigorously. And They they start off by enforcing it when you're boarding the ship and they take your luggage and it's subjected to a screening system that's uh, as, as detailed, if not more so, than the TSA screening because they're looking for more than weapons. And they have dogs that are trained to both sniff out Um, some dogs that can sniff out residue of of gunpowder or things that might be associated with bombs or weapons and other dogs that are there to sniff out cannabis and marijuana products. And uh, the second way they do it is they, they keep an eye on everybody on the cruise. There's cameras everywhere. Um, You know, if you think, well, I'll have a balcony and I'll step out on my balcony. If you know, you're not the very last one at the very back and you know, the wind is blowing, Backwards or however it blows on those boats, uh, there's groups of people that are going to get exposed to the smoke you're blowing out. Assuming you're combusting, as the kids say, um, and you know that that could be kind of hard to pull off. Uh, people have reported smoking on some of the uh, the decks later at night when most people uh, have either moved inside or are gambling or getting drunk or already in bed, um, and they have been they report that they were picked up by some of the cameras and, you know, crews came out and did everything from taking all of it away to, in some cases, uh, you know, actually uh, kicking the the passengers off at the next port and just saying, here's your bags, you're off. It's up to you to find a way to get a hotel room and to get yourself home. You broke the rules. And when they asked the, the cruise ships about it, you know, their response is, hey, look, there's laws out there, both U.S. law, but more importantly, the laws of many of the uh, uh, islands and, and countries that we sail to. And we can't be in a situation where we're potentially breaking those laws, um, not to mention the fact that uh, like any other type of smoking, not everybody enjoys it. And it's not fair to the other people on board uh, who don't want to have smoke if they have a if they've paid extra to get a room with a balcony and the guy next to them uh smokes and you know there's there's a constant smell of marijuana being blown onto their their balcony day in and day out. They may not like that and, and they shouldn't have to put up with that any more than the people smoking the marijuana should have to put up with cigarette smoke. If somebody one balcony up from them is sitting out there smoking cigarettes all day. Although it's not clear to me that it's a strict no smoking ban. And I'm willing to guess that cigarettes and cigars, which are probably very hot items in the gift stores there, because once you're out of U.S. waters, they can sell Cuban cigars all day long. Um, And, you know, I I don't remember the one cruise I was on. I wasn't a big cigar smoker at the time and we smoked plenty of marijuana without any trouble. Uh, But of course, that was 25, almost 30 years ago or more. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm sure things have changed and the boats have all been upgraded and all of that. But You know, this really kind of sucks because, you know, if you're going on a cruise, you're going away to relax, you're going away to have a good time. And, you know, they certainly have no problem with you drinking. And in fact, a lot of people think that's all this is, is that they're trying to shut down the pot smoking because they want people to drink instead, Um, you know, and and, and run up, you know, huge, huge bar bills, which is where they really get you on these things. So that's already, uh, you know, more than hypocritical. My answer is sell your own goddamn marijuana on the board the ship don't say people can't smoke it sell it and you know establish one of the decks as a smoking deck and one of the decks is a non-smoking deck it's not that complicated to do uh, anybody who doesn't smoke is free to go to any deck they want if they don't if they don't like the, the smoke or whatever they smell on the marijuana deck they can drop back down or drop back up you guys have engineers that figure out which are the ones where the which which smoke the which direction the smoke is most likely to go Um yes. And in the privacy of a cabin, if, you know, if you have a window, if you have a balcony, you know, I get that it could be a problem. But how about just being nice and the neighbor saying, hey, you know, your smoke bothers me. Can we agree that we want to be sitting out on our deck, you know, from 4 to 6 p.m. every night without you smoking marijuana? That shouldn't be so hard to accommodate for people, I would like to think, um, you know, and and uh, this can work. But there's so many people these days who who enjoy smoking marijuana and you know with with adult approval rates depending on which polls you're watching being anywhere from 70 to 90% across the country these days um it's not surprising that people are going to want to take marijuana on these cruises and you know a lot of people who who go on cruises tend to be older uh, retired people Um, but not the really old retired people, right? So some of the baby boomers who, you know, now or in the last few years or whatever it's been have have all come of age and, uh, you know, want to relax and uh, celebrate their golden years, if you will, with with some nice cruises while they're healthy and uh, agile enough to be able to do it and to really take advantage of all the great places they get to go and all the great food that they serve. And, you know, and all of that kind of stuff, and those are the people that are really starting to smoke marijuana again. They were folks who smoked it in high school and college, but then stopped uh, because they were they were entering the work world at a time uh, when there was no understanding of the concept of medical cannabis, or even just using cannabis in your own time instead of going home and getting drunk every night. Um, but now that you know their kids have all grown up for the most part, moved out, gotten married, whatever the case may be, many of them are retiring. Um, you know, living a, 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 you know more relaxed lifestyle now. They don't have to worry about uh, job recruitment or, or drug testing or um, anything like that. And for many of them, uh, you know, they're going back to marijuana. We've talked about this in some of the studies that we've related in terms of its use for helping with sleep and with discomfort and with um, all sorts of other types of depressions and uh, mental ailments where people need a way to be able to calm their mind and relax and take a deep breath. And, uh, uh, it, it, it really does that for so many people, but the cruises say no. And, you know, I'm no predictor of the market. And, you know, for all I know, people just say, screw it and they'll go anywhere. They'll do it. And they'll, they'll sneak it on. And, you know, I'm sure over time we'll see stories if it becomes a real problem. Um, but I just hope that they would be willing to find another way to handle the situation uh, where they don't have to lose out on any money uh, and everybody can find their own way to relax certainly a much more healthy way. And we've, we've talked about that considerably on this show and uh, a lot of money to be made if they just want to go in and uh, uh, you know, sell it all themselves. So we'll see. But uh, if you're going on a cruise or thinking about going on a cruise, think about that. And here's the thing, because you got the jam band and you know, my, my son's buddy, Kevin goes on that every year. I know other people who've gone on it. I've never quite made it there, but I think that would be a really hard sell to tell people you're going on the jam band cruise and you can't smoke. And the other thing that I saw is you can't eat gummies. They don't want you to take gummies. And that's a real problem for me. Because eating gummies should not be anybody's freaking business. Nobody smells it. Nobody sees it. And if I've taken three gummies and I'm acting a little loopy, I'm no different than the woman at the table next to me who's had five margaritas and is sloshing all over herself. So, you know, that, that in my opinion, is carrying it a step too far. And gummies are a lot easier to, to manage and to get on board. So maybe that's the answer. Um But... uh you know, maybe they'll see clear to let, you know, vapes and smoking and all stuff like that uh, take place. So people don't have to pay a lot of money and then feel like they're in high school and breaking the rules. OK, back to my concert here, because uh, this is another great tune. That's a wonderful, grateful dead tune and that uh, JRAD covers as well as anybody. And on December 1st of this year, they did a really good job. Everybody knows Fire on the Mountain, song by the Grateful Dead, lyrics by Robert Hunter. And never forget that the music is by drummer Mickey Hart, not Jerry Garcia, even though many mistakenly believe that Garcia wrote the music for it because he plays guitar and sings it. But this is a Mickey Hart tune with Robert Hunter. It was commercially released on the album Shakedown Street in November 1978. Uh, there was an earlier instrumental version titled Happiness is Drumming, which appeared in 1976 on Mickey Hart's album Diga with the Diga rhythm band. Um, and we've talked about other instances when Mickey has actually su- sung the tune himself and he kind of tends to do it in, in, in a, like a Caribbean rap style. That's uh, actually kind of fun to listen to. And you can find it pretty easily on uh, YouTube or anywhere where you go for your musical clips. Um, if you just type in uh, Mickey hard fire on the mountain, Mickey's rap or, or rap, and it'll take you to one of those, and uh, Mickey really gets into it. It's a good time, and uh, it would have been fun to have him do it like that every now and then for the dead. Uh, prior to the uh, release of the Shakedown Street album, uh, the uh, song Fire on the Mountain premiered at a concert on March 18th, uh, 1977 in San Francisco. That, that night, as almost always, it was coupled with Scarlet Begonia's coming on the back end, uh, in other words, Scarlet into Fire on the Mountain, during live performances, producing lengthy musical improvisations. The pair of songs were soon nicknamed, of course, Scarlet Fire, and the sequence typically timed in from anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. The November 1st, 1979 performance at the Nassau County Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, was likely the longest one, coming in at over 34 minutes. Fire on the Mountain was performed in concert by the Grateful Dead 253 times, between 1977 and 1995, and it's also appeared on numerous live Grateful Dead albums all throughout the Dick's Pick series, Dave Pick series, um, and uh, you know, 253 times, so a measurable percentage of any Dead shows that you're going to pull down off of any of the archives out there during the 77 to 95 period. Uh, first played on March 18, 77 at Winterland, And it was played for the last time on July 2nd, 1995 at Deer Creek in uh, Noblesville, Indiana, uh, just outside of Indy. Um, And, you know, look, again, you know, give all these guys credit. Uh, Joe Russo is awesome as a drummer. He's sitting there right in the middle of everything. Um, he's got Marco and Tom Hamilton on his right, and he's got Metzger and Drywitz on his left, and he's shouting the instructions backwards and forwards, and he's doing all the playing, and he's you know just doing everything with it, and it's really uh, he's like a band leader while he's belting out you know the drum line, as impressive as uh, you know as impressive as Molo, as impressive as Jay Lane, certainly you know in its own way. Uh, very impressive like Mickey and Billy although not Mickey and Billy um, but but he's a, a real you know active guy up there bouncing around on his uh seat behind the uh, behind his drum kit and uh, you know that they they really do such a great job and and Tom uh, taking the lead on fire uh, did a stellar performance with it uh, on December 1st and much beloved by the crowd and um it was great so you know uh, this whole show by the way is is now available on archive.org uh, which is where we pulled down these clips to play for you guys today um, and I would you know suggest that anybody who's interested in hearing any of this great live music make their way over to archive.org if you don't already have all the Grateful Dead CDs and if you do have them then you're smart like me because we'll always have them even if the computers crash Uh, and if you don't have them, well, that's okay. You can still have them electronically. And if the computers crash, the rest of us promise we'll let you, you know, burn copies off of ours. Um, but it's, uh, I just, I'd love to collect them and we've talked about that before. Um, but, uh, all good stuff, uh, killing it on fire on the mountain, having a great time at this concert. I was there with my good buddy, JT, his wife, Marnie, uh, my good buddy, Rick, my buddy, Stefan, and my good buddy, Joel, who's Mr. Music and goes to everything. And, uh, if we could all be like Joel, he's, he's just like my buddy, Alex, they probably have some of the best musical karma of any people I know out there. They, they know all the great bands, they know all the great music and somehow they make their way there and, uh, they're always a part of it. And it's a wonderful thing to see. I always love seeing Joel at a concert. Uh, we always enjoy it and uh, have a chance to talk and soak in some great music. And, uh, December 1st was no different. Um, Now, we're going to stay on the music side, but we're going to step away from uh, the J-Rad performance for a minute because today is December 18th, 2023, and that makes it uh, my brother Michael's birthday. Uh, My brother Michael, who lives in New York with his family, uh, his wife Tamara and Lily and Ben and Nathan, and um, nice to celebrate him as he turns 53 years old today. Um, but uh, that's not the guy who we're really totally interested in here, even though I love my brother, Michael, and he's a big music fan and has gone to, he went with me, like I said, to see the uh, Benevento-Russo duo and then play with uh, Trey and Mike. He was with me that night, and he's. we've seen shows at the Capitol Theater together and, and other places like that. But December 18th is also the birthday, birthday of rock and roll legend, and he is a rock and roll legend like very few other rock and roll legends, Keith Richards. And not only is it Keith Richards' birthday today, but today Keith Richards turns 80 years old, eight zero 80 years old, four decades. He's made it through life. We cannot let that milestone go unnoticed. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me because, uh, by all rights, Keith uh, Richards should not be alive at all. We look at all these famous rock and roll musicians who have died, the Fame 27 Club, including his former bandmate, Brian Jones. Um, and so many people have just not made it. And Keith, who uh, kind of made a profession out of abusing drugs and alcohol and and things like that, and you know, writes about it in his autobiography and, <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. And famously said that after his father passed away and they cremated his father, he smoked some of his father's ashes. So, you know, I guess that's pretty hardcore. You can't be any more than that. And yet the man is alive and not only is he alive, but he just played guitar on a new Rolling Stones album that's, that just came out and he'll be touring again with the Rolling Stones this summer uh, as they tour all across North America and wherever else they're going uh, for outrageous amounts of money. But uh, so what? A lot of people go to see them anyway. And of course, you should. It's the Rolling Stones, and they are the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Note i don't say jam band um but uh, just pure flat out rock and roll the rolling stones are it get your Yayas out is far and away one of my favorite live albums of all time exile on main street is one of my all-time favorite albums um but keith is turning 80 today so uh we're going to drop in here a a quick tune that's one of my favorite keith tunes That's the song before they make me run. Uh, It is a song by the Rolling Stones written by uh, Keith featured on their 1978 album. Some girls, Uh, one of the great albums I think of all time. I love some girls as an album and after exile on main street, it's probably my second favorite uh, Rolling Stones album. Uh, English musician, songwriter and singer and recording producer was an original member, guitarist, secondary vocalist and co-principal songwriter, Of the Rolling Stones, his songwriting partnership with the band's lead vocalist Mick Jagger is one of the most successful in history. His career spans over six decades. Uh, Their latest album—I'm sorry, I forget the name—that's terrible—just made it into the top ten on the Billboard uh, uh, 200 album chart. And the Rolling Stones are now the first band to have at least one album in the Billboard uh, top ranking, a top ten ranking, for six consecutive decades—in the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, aughts. Tens and now the 20s and uh, or is that seven well whatever it is six or seven he said they've set the record now and uh, it's pretty amazing uh, that you know not only are they the world's greatest rock and roll band, but this many years later, 60 going on seventy years later, they're still musically relevant and people still want to hear what they have to say and the tickets for these shows have all sold out and they'll if they're not already they'll soon be appearing on the secondary market for the amount that you could use to make a down payment on probably a, reasonably reasonably mid-sized house, you know, in most of America. But, you know, if it's going to see the Rolling Stones, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And I can't argue with that. Uh, not everybody has access to the Uncle Dave tickets like we did back in uh, 1981 when we saw the opening Stones show at uh, JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. Thank you, Uncle Dave, wherever you are these days. Uh, shout out to Buddy Dan and the gang. Uh, we all had fun. The balloons are still up there. Uh, Just by quickly, by way of background, uh, Keith uh, was born and grew up in uh, Dartford, Kent. He studied at Dartford Technical School and Sid Cub Art College. After graduating, he befriended Jagger. Bill Wyman, Charlie Watson, Brian Jones joined the Rolling Stones. Uh, He also sings lead on uh, some of the stone songs, such as Happy and Connection, in addition to Before They Make Me Run, although I've always been very partial to Before They Make Me Run. Um, he also has played with his own side project, the expensive Linos, And he also appeared in three of the pirates of the Caribbean films as captain Teague father of Jack Sparrow, uh, Johnny Depp, whose look and characterization was inspired by Keith himself with all of the uh, uh, scarves, colorful scarves and everything that he wears and all that good stuff. Uh, in 89, Richards was inducted into the ro- into the rock and roll hall of fame. And in 2000 into the, Um, United Kingdom Music Hall of Fame, uh, again with the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stone magazine ranked him fourth on the list of its 100 best guitarists in 2011. In 2023, Rolling Stones' ranking was 15th. The magazine lists 14 songs that Richards wrote with Jagger on its 500 greatest songs of all time. And um, like I said before, They Make Me Run Uh, is just a song of theirs that I like. Um, He says it's his response to his arrest for heroin possession in Toronto in February of 1977. The criminal charges and the prospect of a prison sentence loomed over some of those, some girls recording sessions and endangered the future of the Rolling Stones. But they eventually uh, made their way through all of that. Um, And in the, you know, in the lyrics Richards reflects unapologetically onto his lifestyle up to that point. Uh, It's another goodbye to another good friend. And his verse version can be referred to, uh, interpreters referring to Graham Parsons, who was Richard's close friend who died in 73 from a drug overdose um, and, and, and heroin itself. Richards had sought medical treatment for heroin addiction following his arrest in Toronto, and uh, his resolution to overcome the addiction would be a significant factor uh, in his upcoming trial that he had to, to face for that. He recorded the song in five days without sleeping, originally tied and rot, entitled Rotten Roll, the song was recorded in a Paris studio in March 1978 during one of Mick Jagger's absences from the Some Girls sessions. The completed track, a high-energy rock and roller, features Richards on lead vocals and acoustic and electric guitars, and bass Ronnie Woods on pedal steel guitar, slide guitar, and backing vocals, Charlie Watts on drums, and Jagger on backing vocals. Richards first performed the song in concert uh, on the uh, New Barbarians tour of North America in 1979. It was not until the Steel Wheels tour in 1982 uh, that it entered the Rolling Stones concert uh, um, repertoire. And um, just a great song that I really like a lot and uh, you know can't really quite get uh, uh, enough of when I listen to live Rolling Stones stuff. And the, 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 the live Rolling Stones' Love You Live uh, from the late 1970s has a really good version of Before They Make Me Run on there that uh, is another version I would recommend if you really want to hear hear it sound great so happy birthday Keith man everybody's counted you out for a long time so here's hoping that they're still rung and you're around you know for another 20 years and if you are we'll be celebrating you then as much as ever and you know probably going back to this same song or some of the others because I'm sure your new stuff is great and good and all of that but it's not the old stuff and you know for some of us it never will be really but That's just great anyway. We love you and and all of your music, and I can listen to Rolling Stones all day uh, once I get started doing it. So what we're going to do now is we are going to cut over, and we are going to take a minute to um, listen to uh, Dan's clip for the day as we enter into Cannabis News. The charge yesterday, I was just um, caught with a small quantity of cannabis for which I was fined. Two hundred Barbados dollars. Do do what you know, did you think they send you for drugs? Are you? I don't take drugs. I never Good. have taken drugs. Are you Good. going to? No. were you worried about being? Never safe? again. Never were you afraid. worried about? Let's well, get about one it, thing straight. Can we, we get right? one thing straight? That whatever you think, and whatever you think I've done, this I'm telling you, this substance cannabis is a whole lot less harmful than rum punch, whiskey, nicotine. And glue, all of which are perfectly legal. What about your children? What about your children? I would like to see it decriminalized. Because I don't think in the privacy of my own room, I was doing anyone any harm whatsoever. A young Paul McCartney. Yes, boy, those Beatles sure knew how to make a point about things. And especially cannabis. It was no wonder Richard Nixon hated them and uh, his, his hatred for the Beatles and all things hippie was one of the reasons why... Uh, Tricky Dick went ahead and put uh, marijuana right up on Schedule 1 of his new Controlled Substances Act that was enacted in 1970. And folks, unfortunately, this takes us to our big news story of the day. Thanks to the folks at Marijuana Moment and uh, Ben Adlin for such a great article um, from which we can draw new sources to share with you on what's going on in the world of marijuana. But in a letter sent to the heads of the Department of Justice and Drug Enforcement Administration this week, 29 former U.S. attorneys are urging the Biden administration to leave cannabis and schedule one of the Controlled Substances Act, arguing that marijuana has only become a more dangerous, potent, and addictive substance since the government last reviewed its scheduling in 2016. The correspondence comes as the DEA continues to re- its review of marijuana's scheduling after the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recommended in August that the substance be moved reportedly to Schedule 3. Here's a quote from our friends over at the uh, Department of Justice with with their, trying to explain what they're doing. Quote, almost no one has benefited from legal weed, the former federal prosecutors claim in the new letter. But there is one group coming out on top, drug cartels. Many states have enacted home-grown marijuana laws which led to cartels growing marijuana in the United States to cut trafficking costs, close quote. But, and you know there's always going to be a but when somebody from the government says something stupid like that. The letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and DEA Administrator Ann Milgram does not cite a source, any source, for that claim. No source. This is the 29 former federal prosecutors trying to urge the Biden administration to leave marijuana on schedule one, which is my grandmother would have used to say in Yiddish Ashanda, a terrible thing. Just leave it alone. They can't even come up with a good reason for why they're doing it. So they have to fall back on reefer madness nonsense. No one has benefited from legal weed. Hey guys, I have an idea. Listen to the deadhead cannabis show and all the freaking studies we've been citing week after week after week. And I'm barely scratching the surface of what's out there. Everything that's good with marijuana. Remember, overall insurance rates have gone down. Health insurance rates have gone down in communities that have legal marijuana. People are taking less opioids. People, People are smoking less cigarettes. They're drinking less alcohol. Road rage accidents have gone down. Violent crimes have gone down. Teenage smoking has not gone up. And in some instances, it's gone down marijuana smoking by teenagers. Everything that they said would happen hasn't happened. And these clowns come out and say, oh, no one, you know, no one benefits from legal weed. But then they go on to say, but yes, the drug cartels. Okay. You know, now we're living in Alice in Wonderland turned upside down. Why? Because when marijuana is not legal, the only place we can get it is from the drug cartels. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it has fentanyl. Sometimes it doesn't have fentanyl. But it a lot of times involves weapons of one kind or another and should be the last place that any of us want to ever have to go to find a source of marijuana to be able to smoke in a country where an overwhelmingly huge majority of the population believes that marijuana should be legal and available for reasonable adult use with proper rules, which we've always agreed with and which are out there and which exist and which are certainly as strong, if not stronger than the rules we have for Alcohol, which kills people and is dangerous and terrible. Cigarettes, which kills people and is dangerous and is terrible. Prescription drugs and, you know, other opioids, which are all handed out like candy to people, right? Nobody cares about what happens when we have people on those drugs and and they do things that hurt people. But marijuana, this is the special one. So, okay, great. Thanks, guys, at the DEA. So you're telling us that this creates drug cartels. Why? Because homegrown marijuana laws allow cartels to start business in the United States Wow. Wow. Yeah. You see, because if you're growing at home in the United States, you're basically allowed to grow five plants and it costs money to set these little things up and you have to have somebody there all the time to watch it. It's, it's, it's labor intensive. So what are you telling me that the cartels from Mexico are going to send over 500 people to all live on the North side of Chicago and all buy homes and use those homes so that they can grow their five marijuana plants so they can then take them and congregate them. Yeah, no, that's not saving anybody any money or any trouble. Thank you very much. They don't appear to be having very much trouble getting those drugs into the United States or picking them up from illegal grows in the United States and moving it around. Um, They don't seem to have any trouble doing that at all. So, Uh, you know, the, the only thing that slows them down is when people who would buy from people who would buy from these cartels have a legal alternative when they say, look, I love my buddy Bobby out there, but I don't have to go buy from Bobby this time around for people named Bobby. It's just a name I pulled out of my ass. It's not the name of anybody I've ever bought marijuana from. So people can relax on that, but, um, right. Um, you can walk into a nice, beautiful store, any of these ones that they have, cure Leaf, zen Zenleaf, you know, the, all the ones, cookies, everything all across the country, all the local ones, all the everything. And there it all is for you, you know, and yes, some of it's more expensive than it should be. And some of it's not nearly as good as it should be. But, you know, you can find your places, you know, in the Midwest, you can all get to Michigan pretty easily and find really, really good stuff. We've found some good stuff in Missouri, not enough in Illinois yet, but hopefully the the craft growers, once they come online here very shortly, Will make a big difference in that regard, uh, and, and we'll see if they're uh, uh, brave enough to go forward with that. But you know, look, this this is really preposterous. So this is what they're saying why we have to do it. Uh, but again, they cite nothing, nothing to support these claims. We're just supposed to take them at their at their word. They do, however, assert that data supports the determination that marijuana does not have an accepted medical use or safe use under medical supervision alluding to a June 2023 review that the former U.S. attorney said concluded that cannabis-mace medicines increase adverse events related to the central nervous system. Well, you know, look, you and I can go find people to say that the sun is sky is yellow and the sun is blue, to borrow a famous line from Robert Hunter. That doesn't make it so. And if you, if you choose to ignore the known science that's out there, this is the result that you get. Stupid. You get stupid. And quite frankly, these guys are embarrassing themselves. Why are they doing this? Why don't they just freaking go home and, 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 and forget about it? OK, so, you know, they, they talk about how, no, we, we can't have this because uh, we have to have 280E, because if we don't have 280E, then the marijuana companies can uh, uh, be able to deduct expenses for advertisements appealing to a youth and the sale of kid friendly marijuana gummies. What are they talking about? Have they bothered to read the statutes in any state that's approved marijuana that that specifically talks about the type of packaging you can have? Uh, the, who, the people who wrap it that way are the black market. It's the black market that's trying to cash in on this, not your legal growers, your legal manufacturers, your legal distributors. This is stupid to talk like that right? As stupid as it would be for us to say, well, you know, why can't they, you can deduct the cost of beer. Why can't you go put kitty cartoons out for people to drink beer? And in fact, they do. We see people drinking beer in all sorts of types of shows that are directed at kids. But all of a sudden, everybody's so so worried about this, uh, you know, and that for 50 years, they wrote both Democrat and Republican administrations have followed the science and affirmed that marijuana should not be rescheduled. Uh, and they quote that there haven't been enough large scale clinical trials to show that the benefits outweigh the, the, the risk. But that's because it's schedule one and they can't do any tests. If they really believe this crap, they, you know, they would say, okay, fine. Uh, go ahead. Let's for purposes of testing, we won't prosecute anyone, but they won't do that. So then they could say, there's no tests to prove it's safe, but you can't do any tests because it's schedule one, right? It's the greatest bullshit you can imagine. And, and you know playing it and this is like, this is like the mob coming out of retirement saying yeah we're gonna go around and start whacking people again, it's just dumb. So there's a group out there called Smart Appro- Smart Approach to Marijuana or SAM, and they posted a letter on social media Thursday morning. And the, the president of SAM, Kevin Sebet, says we know today's high potency THC drugs are associated with lower IQ, psychosis, depression, suicide. Suicidal- suicidality, motor impairment, psychosis, and schizophrenia, among other consequences. Rescheduling marijuana will put the commercial drug industry on steroids and make it even worse for those suffering from addiction. We don't have enough time to pull that apart. You folks are smart. smart. You know that what he's saying is bullshit, and it's bullshit for this reason, because <coughs> almost all of this relates to the use of marijuana by teenagers and people under the age of 21. That's what he's talking about and who he's worried about. But most states don't let you buy marijuana until you're over the age of 21. And that keeps, as we've seen, teenagers from going to even greater accesses and increasing the amount of marijuana. They don't do it when it comes in. They don't have to. They don't want to. They don't. So you know, this guy like Sebet, he's proud that his organization helped organize the letter with federal. Here we go, folks. Here's the tell. Federal product executors from bipartisan administrations. But bipartisan might be overstating it just a bit. We go back and we look at the board. 16 were appointed by Trump. 13 were appointed by George W. One was appointed by Bush Sr. One was appointed by Reagan. So if my math is any good, that's twenty nine thirty. 31. And then three had a Democratic overlay and that two were Trump appointees that Biden reappointed. And one was an Obama late term appointee that Trump kept on. So no, that's not bipartisan. That's overwhelmingly Republican reactionary. You're out of your freaking minds. You're trying to model everybody's moral behavior to conform with your warped view of what reality is, because you won't look at the evidence. You won't pay attention to it. I, I, I'm sorry. It's, it's just so frustrating. And by the way, the president of Colombia says that blocking marijuana legalization bills is only helping cartels. Of course it is, because if you can't get it legally, you can only get it on the black market. They know about it. They're not idiots down in Colombia. They know this. But these these federal prosecutors they think they know it all, and they're going to go out there and they're going to tell us all this nonsense. They're repeating old, tired crap that's been disproven and discredited time and time again, especially by folks like Paul Armentano and Mason DeVert and the late Steve Fox and these guys who spend so much time debunking all of these myths and all of this bullshit, and yet they still play this same stupid game. And by the way, uh, some of the Republicans who are, who are supporting this uh siding with this are the same ones who say that no marijuana should be rescheduled without the Senate getting to approve it. We've already talked about that being bullshit, that separation of powers. It's an administrative thing. They don't need to do it. That's all we're going to talk about on marijuana today, because quite frankly, it makes me really angry and there's nothing more to say about it other than it's just more examples of the federal government or those who supposedly serve the federal government in the name of justice and interest and fairness to all continue to perpetuate these bullshit myths and stereotypes and lies about marijuana and cannabis and the people who use cannabis and it's, 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 it's maddening is all that it is. People who just don't know and don't care and they ruin far more lives when they make it illegal again, like they want to, so they can go around busting people and using it, uh, you know. As, a, as, a, as an entirely as a ruse to be able to harass people of color, to be able to harass minorities like they have traditionally for years and years and years. It's a cheap, easy way for them to open somebody's car and use it to leverage a search into something that may either be there or something that they conveniently find there because they put it in there themselves. So, yeah, let's let's not take any of this very seriously when you have these types of people in law enforcement who represent such one side of the political spectrum trying to come in and tell us. And and we all laugh in their face because even even my kids, my younger kids, not young in their 20s, know that when they hear that, that this is bullshit. You know, and their friends and their contemporaries are all old enough and smart enough to understand that it's bullshit. You can't do this and then turn around later on and say there needs to be respect for the law when the law doesn't respect the people that it's serving. So, guys, let's try and work on that. Please uh, find something better to do with your time uh, than wasting all of our times uh, trying to perpetuate a terrible myth about the the necessity to have marijuana On schedule one of the Controlled Substances Act, or even have it on the Controlled Substances Act at all. But if you're going to make the argument, try to please come up with real evidence next time instead of rehashing old crap that's been regurgitated and puked out so many times that, you know, it looks like what people do after they've had a little too much to drink, not too much to smoke. So we're going back to music, man. We're going back to JRAD. We're going back to the, uh, riviera nightclub on december 1st and this was the highlight of this entire concert i talked about it a couple of weeks ago but here it is live for you j rad covering an incredible band and an incredible song Romeo and Juliet is a rock song by British rock band Dire Straits written by its frontman, Mark Knopfler, lead guitar player. It first appeared on the band's 1980 album, Making Movies, by the way, one of my all-time favorite albums, one of my wife's as well. Romeo and Juliet may be her favorite song of all time. Um, The song was released as a single in 1981. The song subsequently appeared on the Dire Straits live album, Alchemy, uh, which is, uh, again, both for my wife and I, one of our favorite live albums out there. Uh, and this is one of the highlights of the Alchemy album. If you've never listened to Alchemy, I strongly, 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 strongly recommend it. Uh, the song also appeared later on Knopfler's live duet album with Lou Harris, Real Live Road Running. Although Harris does not actually perform on the, uh, this particular track, uh, Romeo and Juliet, even though she's on a lot of the other part of the live duet album This is a live duet album. The song itself was written by Knopfler. He says he was inspired by his failed romance with Holly Vincent, lead singer of the short-lived band Holly and the Italians. The song speaks of a Romeo who's still very much in love with his Juliet, but she now treats him like just another one of her deals. Knopfler has both stated and implied that he believes Vincent was using him to boost her career. The song's line, now you just say, oh Romeo, yeah, you know, I used to have a scene with him refers to an interview with Vincent where she says, what happened was that I had a scene with Mark Knopfler and it got to the point where he couldn't handle it and we split up. So, okay, you know, there's a real heartthrob story back behind it, but it's a beautiful tune. Um, Not only do they play it so well, but it's the fact that they would venture off into a song like Dire Straits uh, is one of the reasons why I love to go to see J-Rad right? They just had, um, this really nice jam going, uh, and and they jam out everything And but they don't just do it for the sake of doing it. They do it in such a way, uh, that it's so lovely. It it just really uh, is great. They were coming out of a feels like a stranger and just playing it and playing it. And all of a sudden, and we, we, we didn't play the opening part of the song there, uh, because quite frankly, the part that we played, I think was, you know, they, they really built up to it and that's a, that's a great part of the song to hear. Um, But the opening is very, very distinctive, so distinctive that in the midst of this Grateful Dead heavy feels like a stranger jam, uh, as I heard one or two little notes coming out. um, And again, you know, for the second set, I was down on the floor in the the RIV, so a little closer proximity to the stage and really soaking it all in. And boy, man, within two or three notes, I, I knew what it was. Uh, still was couldn't convince myself that that's what they were going to really be playing uh, until Hamilton started singing it. And again, he's, he's like a chameleon because he sounds very much like Mark Knopfler when he's singing that song. But what a great thing to hear. My wife was totally bummed that she missed it because she didn't go to the show, but you know, like a well has always told us miss a little miss a lot. And he was very big in pushing me uh, to find the uh, inspiration to get up and drive downtown on a Friday night, but being able to go with my friends, John and Marnie and, Rick and Stefan and Joel also made it a little more fun. And uh, we, we really had a great time that night. And uh, it was was a great show all the way around. Um, so we still have one song left, which we're going to play here uh, on our way out at the end of the show today. Um, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, it was really a lot of fun. Uh, sorry for the ranting and raving about the federal government with marijuana. But, you know, when you're that blatantly uh, hip. hip, hip hypocrite, hypocritical, or, um, you know, even just, you know, even if it's not hypocrisy because you you continue to maintain the same position over and over again, but an uneducated, uninformed opinion that works wonderful for law enforcement that wants to build more jails and build up a a profit industry out of throwing innocent, Otherwise, very innocent and productive people in jail simply because they choose a different form of uh, intoxicant to help them relax or enjoy life a little bit. You know, they don't drink. uh, They don't take Xanax or Valium or things like that. They don't snort cocaine. Uh, They light marijuana up and they smoke it or they vape it or they take gummies. And to treat these people like criminals is a terrible, terrible thing. And, uh, you know, there's no excuse for the government still engaging in, in behavior. Uh, as odious and, and 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 just overall not good. That's all I'm going to say. Um, on the way out, we're going to listen to Hard to Handle. Uh, we've listened to Hard to Handle before. It's an Otis Redding tune that he recorded in late 1967, shortly before his death. It was released as a single in June 1968, and by 1969, it was being covered by a number of people, and surprisingly, The Grateful Dead seemed to have been one of the first. If anyone were to think... Of the least likely groups in 69 to cover some funky new R&B, the dead would probably be on that list. They hadn't shown any interest in picking up new R&B covers since mid-1967 when they started doing Love Light. And since then, they had focused on their original acid rock material. Many old covers dropped out of their set list. And from the summer of 68 through the winter of 69, their shows were almost exclusively devoted to... uh, Anthem of the Sun, uh Live Dead sweet material, maybe with a little um coming in uh to the mix as well. But by March of nineteen sixty-nine and uh and moving on from there, they they seemed to have felt a need for something new. Uh the Live Dead album was in the can and the repertoire had not varied much in months, and aside from a couple of sluggish misbegotten renditions of Hey Jude that winter, um and you can hear it on the uh Fillmore West sixty nine uh, I think it's the the, the March first show. It is uh, it is pretty misbegotten version. That's a great way to say it. Hard to handle was their first cover of uh, their first cover song in over a year. Over the course of the spring, they would gradually bring in more cover tunes, bringing back many songs they had stopped playing in previous years, and the shows would start to reflect a wider set of influences. Pigpen probably emulated Otis, and of course this song would have matched his strutting stage persona. It may have even been his idea to cover it. The dead must have known they could not recapture the tight, snappy Stax horn and sound of Redding's original, and they didn't even try. Instead, they adapted it to their loud, heavy, lumbering two-drum, two-guitar style, of course adding a big guitar solo. Uh, Pigpen had a a set way of uh, playing the song closely following Redding's uh, performance, which would very little over the next few years, the band would go through some dramatic changes and they would, they played the song um, a little bit lighter on their feet. They would also attempt James Brown Man's World, not one of uh, his funkiest efforts, but it would only last for a few months. Uh, the Dead had long been fans of, of Otis Redding um, in 67 and 66 and 67. Pigpen was recording his 63 song, Pain in My Heart. Um, the Dead opened for uh, Otis Redding once on uh, December 20th, 1966, um, and uh, uh, there's there's music out there on that, which we may get to someday. Um, uh, on a, a show with Tom Donahue uh, in April of 1967, Tom Donahue was a guy who was around in media all the way through the 70s and even into the early 80s, eventually becoming one of the first really late-night TV talk show hosts. Uh, he was asking about um, going out and playing a number Uh, either with Otis or or coming out and playing after he would you know, get everybody warmed up. And Les says it was kind of scary to work with Otis. He tore it up. Garcia said, Otis is really heavy. He tore the place apart. When he came on stage, it was like the whole place got about six times as big, and the band just got real snappy. It was so fine, and the music was really good. Uh, The the Dead debuted hard to handle at the Black and White Ball, the Hilton Hotel show from San Francisco on March 15, 69. Uh, They came out and opened the show with it. Um, They hadn't really played it a lot, so they still had a lot of trouble keeping it together. Um, At the end, the band thinks that uh, uh, they were confused about some of the verses, and maybe Pigpen just got out there and finished it. But then he sang another verse. They tried to come to an abrupt end, and whatever. It was great, typical Grateful Dead stuff. They last played it on December 31st, 82, at the Oakland Civic Auditorium, total of 120 times overall. Um, but it's a great, great tune. It's a good way to go out, so I hope you will uh, listen and enjoy it. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, We'll probably have one more show this year before we take a little break for the holiday, so hopefully you'll listen to us again next week. Thanks to Dan for producing. Um, Have a great night, everybody. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly.